Welcome to A Writer's War, a National Lottery Heritage Fund First World War Centenary Project, produced by Chrome Radio for the University of Oxford's Faculty of Medieval and Modern Languages, in partnership with Year 10 students from Oxford Spires Academy. In this group of podcasts, we learn about different responses to the First World War in Britain, France, Germany, and former colonies of the British and French empires. We hear now from Richie Robertson, Taylor Professor of the German Language and Literature and Fellow of the Queen's College, about the German response. Storm of Steel I am Richie Robertson, Professor of German at Oxford. In my office in the Modern Languages Faculty, surrounded by books and a computer, inevitably. If you can hear background noises, that's because there are a lot of teaching rooms in this building. The noises will calm down shortly when the classes get underway, but at the moment people are still settling themselves. We're all familiar with the literature in English of the First World War. We know the war poets, Owen, Sassoon, Rosenberg, Gurney and others. They were part of the school syllabus in my day, and still are. We also know the Memoirs of the War. The book by Robert Graves, Goodbye to All That, is probably the most famous and certainly one of the best. There's also Edmund Blunden, Undertones of War, and some others. There is also Fiction of the War, of which I think Frederick Manning is the outstanding author with Her Private's We. We don't always realise that there is a similar body of writing produced on the German side. The poetic output in Germany is limited by the fact that some of the outstanding poets were killed early in the war. Ernst Stadler was killed at Ypres in October 1914, for example, and Georg Trakel, the author of two superb poems about the war, also met an early death. But a number of others survived, among whom I must mention Anton Schnack, not at all a well-known poet, who wrote, however, a remarkable sequence of 60 sonnets in an unusual form with very long lines, evoking the experience of the Western Front. After the war, while Germany was digesting its defeat and adjusting to becoming a republic instead of an empire, there was a pause of some 10 years before a large body of fiction about the war appeared, with a few exceptions. Remark brought out In West and East Noise, All Quiet in the Western Front, in 1929, that was a bestseller and a worldwide success. It promptly translated into a number of languages, and it was filmed. Remark told for many people the truth about the war, and he also spoke very consciously for the lost generation, the generation of young men who had gone to war with no idea what they were letting themselves in for, lost the best years of their lives, and had great difficulty adjusting to civilian life afterwards and, of course, in many cases, lost their lives altogether as a result. Besides Raymark, the number of other authors one could mention, Ludwig Rehn, who wrote low-key, down-to-earth, factual accounts of war, with emphasis more on the blundering than the bloodshed, and a very curious and very rare book by Ernst Johansson, which purports to be the memories of the war told by a horse, called Memories of the Front by a Horse. This horse, a mare tells her experiences with amazement at the murderous folly that humans get up to. Horses played a very large part in the First World War, not only cavalry horses, but much more. 
Horses would be used to pull artillery. Transport was otherwise very limited. Heavy artillery could be brought by train to the railhead, but after that it had to be lugged to the front by horses, and light artillery was sometimes pulled by dogs. I mentioned one exception to the dearth of serious war books after the war, and that is the book available in English as Storm of Steel by Ernst Junger, a very remarkable writer by any standard. Junger was a soldier, a scientist, as well as a novelist. Politically, he was very far to the right, and in the 1920s, he became the centre for a number of far-right groups, but he was not a Nazi and never joined the Nazi party. His book, Storm of Steel, recounts his own experiences, and it's as unpolitical as possible. It doesn't take a stand either for or against the war. It treats the war simply as an experience. He is, in a way, very honest. He admits to being often frightened out of his wits and also often to enjoying himself hugely. He was wounded several times, and the book ends with his receiving a decoration as he was dying, convalescing in hospital. Jünger afterwards mythologized the war into a heroic experience and developed a vision of the future in which democracy would be abolished and an elite of hard-bitten technocrats would rule over a population schooled in mindless obedience. Fortunately, nothing of this sort came to pass. His fantasies were never put to the test. He survived the Second World War in the German army, spending most of his time in occupied Paris, remained a noted writer after the war, and moved into different areas, including science fiction, and died in 1998 at the age of over 100. So there you have a very rapid survey of the German literature of the First World War. One of the first victims of the war among writers was Ernst Stadler. He was not strictly speaking a German. He came from Alsace, which had been conquered from France in the Franco-Prussian War in 1871. He was, in his outlook, a very international person, equally at home in the German and French languages. He studied English and comparative literature. He went to Oxford and wrote a thesis on German translations of Shakespeare. If he had lived, he would have moved to Canada, where there was a job lined up for him as a professor of comparative literature. Most of Stadler's poetry was written before the war. It's a very passionate poetry in long, surging lines. It shows influences from English and American literature, especially from Walt Whitman. He has a lot to say about emotion, passion, sexual excitement. His most famous poem, Journey Across the Rhine Bridge at Cologne at Night, makes this crossing of the bridge into a sensual, even a sexual, and a metaphysical experience. Stadler's early death is a very great loss to literature. He didn't live to write directly about the war. There is, though, a remarkable poem by him, Der Aufbruch, Sitting Out, which evokes the excitement that many people felt in Germany at the possibility of war. These were comparatively innocent times. He evokes the experience of a cavalry charge, so he has a somewhat old-fashioned vision of what war would be like, soon to be obsolete. And again, this cavalry charge even if it leads to death, is represented as being a supreme experience. In fact, a feature common to several writers about the war, certainly to Stadler and Ernst Jünger, is that war is made into a heroic experience, perhaps a test of manhood, certainly an experience well worth living and dying for. This heroic vision of the war would contrast sharply with the reality that we read about in Remark especially, where a great deal of time is spent crouching in trenches in great discomfort, one famous passage in Remarks, All Quiet in the Western Front, describes the relief the soldiers feel 
when they can escape and conceal themselves in field lavatories out of a quiet smoke. When Remark talks about the actual fighting, he brings out the very sharp contrast between how people imagined the war and how it actually turned out to be. His main characters are a group of schoolboys who are pressured by the schoolteacher into volunteering. The schoolteacher's fool of enthusiastic patriotism, increased by the belief that he himself will never have to serve at the front. So they all volunteer in a surge of enthusiasm. Military training is very rough. The narrator comments that it makes them into fighting animals, but without that painful training, they'd never have survived. The experience at the front is a shock. One of the first things that happen is that one of their comrades is shot, blinded, and they can't save him. Another is severely wounded, taken to a field hospital, and his comrades visiting him let slip what he doesn't know, that his leg has already been amputated. He complains of pains in his leg, and they unwisely tell him that these pains are imaginary, his leg is no longer there. There is a famous description of going over the top, an equally famous description of crouching for 36 hours in a dugout under shell fire, unable to eat or drink, and so in extreme discomfort as well as fear. One of the things the remark does is remind us all the time of the basic necessities of life. It turns out that what preoccupies soldiers on the front line is not winning the war. They soon cease to care if they ever did about the cause of the war or the purpose of the war. What preoccupies them is getting enough to eat. There is, for example, a great episode in which a very resourceful soldier manages to steal a goose, and he and the narrator secretly roast the goose over a fire. The narrator also finds, when he goes back home, that people in his hometown have absolutely no understanding of the war. They slap him in the back, say he's doing well, and they're sure that spirits at the front must be very high, and of course he can't tell them what it's really like. Nor can he tell his mother, because she's already worried sick about him and doesn't want to make her feel any worse. Other writers of the war in this country as well comment on the complete lack of understanding between civilians and soldiers. Robert Graves, in Goodbye to All That, brings this out very strongly. Raymark takes his narrator through the war, Tanks come into use, and the narrator comes to feel the war has been completely dehumanised and is being fought between machines. The narrator dies in the course of the novel. Now, normally that shouldn't happen in a novel, because if you're telling a story in the first person, you can't recount your own death. But in the final paragraph, there's a sudden switch from the first person to the third person, and we're simply told how the narrator met his death. The book was a bestseller when it came out, the film, directed by Lewis Milestone, came out in 1930. It's a little disconcerting when you see it because the young German soldiers speak with American accents, but then the film was made for an American audience who have to empathise with the soldiers. The film also appeared in German and was something of a political sore point. Right-wingers, and especially Nazis, objected to it. When the film was shown in Berlin, Nazis tried to distract the audience letting mice loose in the cinema, but it didn't stop the film's popularity. Remark continued to live in Germany under the Third Reich and in the Second World War, but he kept his head well down. His profession was that of a sports journalist, and he was able to live modestly as a professional writer, and also to produce a number of other novels, though none with the success of All Quiet on the Western Front. In some ways, the best book, to my mind, about Germany in the First World War is a novel that came out about 10 years after the war, this time by Arnold Zweig. 
The novel is called, in English, The Case of Sergeant Grisha. It doesn't involve any fighting. It takes place behind the lines in the German-occupied area of northeastern Europe, more or less present-day Lithuania. The Grisha of the title is a Russian soldier who deserts. He wants to go back to his family. He's caught and suspected of being a spy. The German authorities put him on trial, but a number of Germans, some officers, one of whom is a lawyer from Berlin, plead his case and try to get him off. They don't succeed, but the novel becomes a tremendous story of justice and the difficulty of obtaining justice. It ends with Grisha's death, but it also ends with forebodings of the end of German power. Zweig, of course, was writing with hindsight, 10 years after the war, and places Imperial Germany in a long sequence of empires which have grown, become oversized, overstretched themselves, been carried away by pride and self-satisfaction, and ended. The Persians, the Romans, and now the German Empire. The novel's also warning for the future, because when Zweig published it, Nazis were simply one party among others, although a very noisy and unruly one. Zweig, who was a Jew, went into exile in 1933 in Palestine and continued to write fiction from there. One of his best novels, written shortly after the war, Das Beil von Wandsbeck, The Axe of Wandsbeck, Wandsbeck is a suburb of Hamburg, is actually set in Nazi Germany and turns on an unsuccessful attempt to assassinate Hitler and also on the moral struggles of a butcher who is required, because his trade is killing animals, to become an executioner and execute enemies of the regime. This novel is tremendously powerful. I should mention one other novel by Zweig, which has recently been translated, called Outside Verdun. Verdun was a fortress which the Germans devoted tremendous resources to capturing. It was a real centre of the war effort and a place where many, many soldiers met their deaths. Zweig once again writes about the attempts of good-hearted and well-intentioned people to limit the bloodshed, and he asks some difficult questions about what a well-meaning person can hope to achieve under such circumstances. So, Outside Verdun is a novel that I warmly recommend. So the experience of the First World War generated not only descriptions of action and of the suffering imposed by war, but also reflections on justice and power. You have been listening to A Writer's War. I do hope you'll join us for the next podcast in the series.